Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. To really do the story of 1916 justice, we need 16 more episodes to cover what happens next. Because space, time, and my own sanity will not allow such an adventure, though, this summary of where our story ends will have to suffice. When we began, in the prologue, it was William Gladstone who declared in 1868 that his mission was to pacify Ireland. Now that we have reached the effective end of the narrative, and Ireland has begun down a path of militarism and radicalism, such a mission appears to have been a fool's errand from the beginning. Was it? We have seen Ireland's many faces in the 16 episodes I've delivered to you guys since we began this special. What you have hopefully gathered from all the info, the detail, the drama, the characters, and the controversial views, is the fact that Irish history by no means travelled in a certain or definite direction. Just like any other time period in history, such as the First World War, the Second World War, Thirty Years' War, American Civil War, the War of the Roses, The 1916 Rising required an exact amount of ingredients to have the impact that it did. The years after the Rising required just the right amount of solidarity, radicalism, British blunders, wartime necessities and looming fears and misunderstandings to reshape Ireland into what it became upon the stunning result of the 1918 British general election. To recap... Let's examine how we got here, with a brief summary of the episodes and their contents. If you don't want to do this, then by all means skip ahead, but it could be a handy recap if you haven't listened to all the episodes in a bunch, and if you haven't really been much of a binger, and if you have kind of listened to them one at a time over the space of a month or two, or if you've been a good podcast listener and have listened to them as they were released. So let's go. If you can remember back to episode 1, The Lay of the Land, it was the old moderates of the Irish Parliamentary Party under Charles Stuart Parnell that we began our narrative with. While these were contrasted with the old radicals of the 19th century Irish Republican Brotherhood, who episode 2, The Extremist Fringe, introduced us to in more depth. Both groups, as we saw, cooperated and swapped members as the common goal of reform in Ireland was worked towards. The Unionists entered our narrative in episode 3, She Has Begun to Sing, just as the Irish Parliamentary Party was beginning its split over Parnell. This split in Irish politics would last until the dawn of the 20th century, 
while in the meantime Unionists the length of Ireland defined themselves as wholly opposed to the concept of home rule. By the time the Irish Parliamentary Party had reunified, Ireland had been swept by an immense cultural, linguistic and musical wave, which saw the spawning of numerous groups and the emergence of a greater sense of national awareness amongst even the moderate Irish representatives. Episode 4, The North Began, saw our attentions focus squarely on political developments in the Unionist and British camp. In a series of falling dominoes, the Irish Parliamentary Party reasserted its importance to the Liberal Party. The Parliament Act ended the absolute veto of the House of Lords, Home Rule seemed to be on the cards, and the Unionists solidified their stance against Home Rule by signing a covenant proclaiming the unified resistance of the Unionist community under Sir Edward Carson's banner. This theme bled into episode 5, This Strange Thing We Are, where we saw the Unionists formulate their response to the possibility of home rule by arming their militias and turning them into volunteer forces in the process. This ratcheted up the tensions something fierce on the whole island of Ireland and led to the formation of the Irish Volunteer Force as an answer to the perceived Unionist challenge. These events were critical points on the journey towards radicalisation that Ireland was veering towards. And in episode 6, And We Looked to Europe, we saw how both Unionist and Nationalist alike would rationalise their newfound proclivity to use arms with the outbreak of the First World War. The war, as we saw, shattered the ongoing narrative, which seemed to be travelling towards home rule in the best case, or civil war in the worst. The First World War enabled the British government to place home rule on hold until the war had ended. While both Carson of the Unionists and John Redmond of the Nationalists now weighed in on the debate, the latter arguing for the Irish commitment to the cause, and taking most of the Nationalists with him. We debated Redmond's contribution at that time, where he made a speech at Woodenbridge in County Wicklow, urging Irishmen to fight. Redmond's naivety was on display for all to see, but he never imagined that the war would become what it did, and he instead hoped that the entire venture could be used to the Nationalists' benefit. Carson hoped that the Unionists could do the same thing, with the result being that both Irish camps had ulterior motives for supporting the British master, but both would soon be shocked into making contingency plans on the fly. Episode 7, What Would Come After, saw us define the belief systems of Patrick Pierce and James Connolly, arguably the two most recognisable figures of the Rising, before seeking to place the outbreak of the war in context and examine how it impacted those that lived through it. We made an important distinction between the romantic ideas of a redeeming blood sacrifice espoused by Patrick Pierce and the more realistic, almost cynical expectation of an inspirational death upheld by others on the military council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. This military council was where we first got to grips with what was meant by a minority of a minority within a minority. Little did you know that at that point it would become Zach's favourite phrase, not. <laughs> Herein we concluded that the most important thing to such leading rebels was the course Ireland would take after their likely deaths. 
would the Irish people remember them and draw inspiration from their continuation of the Fenian tradition, or would they fail to be awakened after all? Episode 8, The Plot Thickens, in a generic name for an episode that was anything but generic, saw us dwell on this question a little more before delving into the more complex and arguably more dry areas about the IRB's structure and how it had managed to position itself in such leading positions across the Irish spectrum when extremist republicanism was only empathised with by a small few. This impact of positioning oneself in important leadership posts demonstrated itself in the following episode, where the rising exploded onto our pod at last. Episode 9, Call Them Blessed, we saw the outbreak of the rising in our narrative at last, and we listened to the developments within the Irish cultural and literary movements, which had led Owen McNeil as Chief of Staff of the Irish Volunteers to pledge his support to the rising. Yet, McNeil had only pledged this support because he had been duped into thinking that the Rising was something other than what it became, and thus he ordered a stop to manoeuvres and created a massive amount of confusion over Easter weekend in the process. The rebels elected to act regardless, as we saw, since by now they had come too far to back down, and the end goal of launching a military protest for most was worth the effort even without the necessary possibility of success. The Rising was thus launched as it had been planned, and the rebel commanders went to their positions, picking up volunteers and IRB men along the way. The German elements of the plan now having been apparently abandoned, the rebels were on their own, to withstand the might of the British army. But they certainly managed to create a big spectacle before they could be stopped. In episode 10, The Pedestal of Revolt, we took a time out from the Rising and instead posed an alternative scenario to you for the purpose of seeing things outside the historical box. This was the episode where I tried to get my views across to you guys in as clear a way as possible without being too dogmatic or repetitive. Hopefully I succeeded. I basically argued that the Rising should not have happened and cannot be justified as a response to British tyranny since... Well, there was no tyranny, really. I used the thesis of the altruistic evil to demonstrate what I meant, an idea that stipulates how one can use something evil or violent, such as a revolution, for good or highly moral reasons. That whole episode, I feel, served as a good example of where I stand, so if you need a refresher course on that before the predictably epic conclusion, I would recommend going there. Episode 11, Chaos, Carnage, Controversy, contained all of those elements, and saw us return to the narrative as we delved into the controversies surrounding the murder of Francis Sheehy Skeffington and the uproar it was later to cause, as well as the massacre of British soldiers at Mount Street Bridge, which put the British on notice and showed how effective rebels in reinforced positions could be. It was here that the rebels under Eamon de Valera's command repelled repeated attacks by the Sherwood foresters, until the rebels were eventually forced to retreat from the position. Elsewhere, we examined the increased devastation of Dublin, as the city it shelled by heavy guns and a British gunboat transformed the narrative from a tale of resistance in Dublin streets to a game of cat and mouse, as the British planned to destroy the city's blocks with intense shelling, creating fires and killing many others in the process. 
we concluded our coverage with an introduction to Sir John Maxwell, Ireland's soon-to-be military governor and a mainstay of our story for the next few episodes. Episode 12, The Price of Defiance, continued our coverage of the military events of the Rising as our eyes were taken across Ireland in a broad sweep of developments in each region of the island as different responses were made to the Rising in different places. We jumped headlong into another controversy then with an account of what occurred at North King Street where British soldiers carelessly and brutally invested houses occupied by Dublin civilians and seemed to have shot indiscriminately as they did so, causing further casualties. As the rebels began their contemplation of surrender with the week winding down, we reflected upon what Dubliners had seen and what they thought of the rebels, as well as a refresher in what the rebels aimed to achieve, and whether military success was ever a realistically attainable goal. Episode 13, The Promise of Surrender, opened with the accounts of the rebels' leadership's determination to surrender and place themselves in British custody. The rising now officially over as a military event, it was now the ultimate aim of much of the rebel leadership, in particular those that had signed the proclamation, to die at Britain's hands and fulfil their destiny as martyrs for Ireland, hopefully inspiring an unawakened Irish populace, as well as the unborn generations, to copy their example in the process. Episode 14, The Power of Belief introduced us to key contextual concepts. We were confronted with the idea propagated at the time that the rebels had fought a clean and honourable fight that citizens of Ireland could be proud of, and we came to see such an expression as the best way for bystanders to express sympathy with them. The change in how media worked was one which was birthed from the vivid and intimate portraits of post-rising Dublin that so many accounts photographs and articles in subsequent newspapers recreated. Such a change added to the debate on the war, as we saw, and increased the demand for greater information on how it was conducted, as well as what the men were really doing at the front, and what they experienced and saw. General Maxwell's decisions to aggravate the situation reached their conclusion in this episode as tensions in Dublin reached themselves a fever pitch in an atmosphere of martial law, and with much rumour surrounding the whereabouts of thousands of Irish people arrested without trial after the Rising. We then placed Patrick Pearce in context of the era of brutalisation and romance by comparing him to the French war hero Charles Peggy, with important results for the narrative in my opinion, since it helped us see the extent to which the world Pearce lived in shaped his views and the views of those around him. As Arthur Griffith comes to terms with his newfound popularity in this so-called Sinn Féin rebellion, we led ourselves into episode 15, The End of Ireland Old, with worrying displays of determination and a lack of mercy from Sir John Maxwell. While Irish MPs in Westminster debated furiously at the pace and method of the executions, London appeared content to bow to Maxwell's judgement as military governor rather than step on anyone's toes. And in the interest of not stepping on anyone's toes, Maxwell is allowed to continue his policy of executions without so much as a public protest from anyone in Prime Minister Herbert Asquith's cabinet. Pressure soon got the better of Asquith and his executioner though, 
and the 12th of May executions of Sean McDermott and James Connolly did prove to be the last. Well, at least in Ireland. With the rebel leaders, now martyrs, and the signatories of the proclamation of the Irish Republic now dead, killed, their supporters claimed, attempting to fulfil its promises. The situation begins then to get out of Maxwell's control and capabilities. With sympathies blowing firmly in the direction of the rebels, Sinn Féin begins its climb towards political participation by organising itself into the vehicle of the rising that the rebels and sympathisers alike now needed it to be. This transformation was examined in episode 16, The Beginning of Ireland New, wherein we compared the beliefs, methods and faults of both the rebels and the masters to kick off, before detailing in as brief but comprehensive a fashion as we could the following trends in Irish history after May 1916. It was an examination that led us to late 1918, when ill omens about what was to come next in Ireland seemed to be manifesting themselves, and the Dublin administration, based in Dublin Castle, was perched precariously on the sympathies of traditional, nationalist Irish citizens. In such an atmosphere, with Britain entering peacetime after over four years of total war, and Ireland regaining its full attention again, the situation looked almost certain to intensify, which it soon did. Over the course of 16 episodes, as we have just seen, Ireland was transformed from a willing participant in Britain's political system to a revolutionary island energised by the zeal of its martyrs and militarised by the culture of violence that had now so captivated its people. The separatist republican message of the Fenians, which for so long had failed to gain a significant following, now held the future of Ireland in its hands in the form of Sinn Féin, It was a result beyond the imagination of even the most positive rebel leaders that went out during Easter week of 1916. For all their romanticism and, well, naivety, did Patrick Pearce expect physical force republicanism, a minority position by 1916, to gain such mainstream acceptance and adherence as Ireland's dominant creed? Perhaps neither he nor his comrades anticipated the extent to which Britain would take the ball of the rebels and run with it. Perhaps they had counted on the British exercising more restraint. Perhaps it was above even their imaginations to envision an Ireland so different from the one they departed from. What is certain, though, is that in the months immediately following Sinn Féin's general election victory in December 1918, a storm was brewing in Ireland. Home rule, it was now clear, would no longer be enough to a populace of radical nationalists imbued with the old Fenian message of resistance and republicanism. Everything Britain had done since the 1916 Rising had taken place, the controversies, the cover-ups, the arrests, the executions, the oppressive regime, the ban on the nationalist press, the ignorant British officials, the slow response of the Irish Parliamentary Party, the stubbornness of the Unionists, the ignorance of the Fenian ideology with respect to the Unionists, the looming threat of conscription, the apparent thanklessness of the British administration, the lack of appreciation for Irish concerns, the problems posed by the partition question, the arrest of the vast majority of Sinn Féin's deputies, 
All of these issues, occurring at a time when a war raged and violence was rampant, where human life was reduced in value, and when grand romantic ideals were upheld, they all combined to create a new determination within the Irish people. A burning desire for more. For more independence, for more justice, for more transparency. Irish people, having played for so long according to London's rules on the Westminster system, must have looked at the world that the war had created and wondered, why not? Why shouldn't Ireland be entitled to self-rule, and not just self-rule, but independence? Belgium had it. Belgium, a small European country that Irish people had fought to free from German occupation. Could Britain honestly claim to stand for the rights of small nations, while at the same time denying the professed unified will of Irish nationalists, at least, to create their own independent homeland? These were burning questions, no doubt, but the fact that Irish people were even thinking them speaks volumes about the atmosphere of the country as 1919 dawned. That year, the armistice of the war would be transformed into a true peace in Versailles, with representatives from every country of the world invited to attend. Irish separatists could dream even at this early stage for Ireland to hold no less of a right than any other nation, to hold a seat at the table of nations. The time had come to ask why, to stop accepting crumbs from Britain's table, and to appeal to the rights that all nations had to forge their own destiny and rule their own people. By sheer force, the belief went, Irish people had been held down to Britain, and before that, England, for 700 years. Now Ireland would answer back. Her proud people demanded a stand, her rich history required a nation-state, just like any other European race would. Her late martyrs challenged those that remained to finish what they had started, and turn the professed dreams and ambitions of the 1916 Rising into a reality. During the spring and summer of 1916, another revolution was taking place. This was the literary revolution, and it would recast the characters of the 1916 Rising into songs and poems that would immortalise their deeds, and welcome into Irish sainthood those that had acted in the name of Irish freedom. A vast array of pamphlets and newspapers emerged in the weeks after, promoting the cause of republicanism, emphasising the bravery and selflessness of the rebels, and calling on citizens to honour their names. This boom period in Irish revolutionary literature could fill libraries, as every individual with access to paper seemed to have put the year's events into some kind of poetic device, rousing message, or fiery verse. Of all of these, to us the most useful and famous of all, as well as in my opinion still the best, is the work Easter 1916, created by William Butler Yeats. Yeats is a character we've been following on and off for the past 16 episodes, but this is really his swan song. Easter 1916 captures not only the stark changes in the country of Ireland in the space of a few years, but it also denotes the author's conflictions and concerns for what is to be the destined result of such an event as significant as the Rising. I would really appreciate if you could listen as closely as possible to each stanza as I read it out, and in the end we'll give a brief analysis of what Yeats was getting at, so you have an idea for context. Here we go. I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces, 
From counter or desk, among grey, 18th century houses, I have passed with a nod of the head, or polite meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said polite meaningless words, and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a jibe, to please a companion around the fire at the club, being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn, all changed, changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her nights in argument until her voice grew shrill. What voice more sweet than hers when young and beautiful she rode to harriers? This man had kept a school and rode our winged horse. This other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force. He might have won fame in the end, so sensitive his nature seemed, so daring and sweet his thought. This other man I had dreamed, a drunken, vainglorious lout, he had done most bitter wrong. To some who are near my heart, yet I number him in the song. He too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Hearts with one purpose alone, through summer and winter seem, enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range, from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute, a horse hoof slides on the brim and a horse splashes within it. Where long-legged, more hens dive and hens to more cocks call, minute by minute they live, the stones in a midst of all. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice that is heaven's part, our part, to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child, when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. When is it but nightfall? No, no, not night but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough, to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in verse, Macdonough and Macbride, and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. This poem is so special because each verse represents stages in W.B. Yeats's life. In the first, he is exchanging polite, meaningless words, because he is little in common with the more extreme nationalists which he cannot identify with. Yeats recounts how he openly mocked them to get a laugh out of his friend in the club. The second stanza is more sombre, but still somewhat disconnected from events. Yeats describes here the early days of the revels, he refers to one, this man kept a school, in a clear reference to Pierce, while he also references Thomas McDonough as Pierce's helper, coming into his force. While John McBride, an individual who married Yeats's muse Maud Gone, 
only to separate from her and return to Ireland, is the individual who hurt someone that Yeats loved, and is the drunken, vainglorious lout that he describes. Verse 3 uses a certain amount of tricky imagery, with the changing pace of Ireland depicted by a horse, clouds and a stream, all fast-moving things. On the other hand, the stone that fails to move is said to represent the determination of the rebels to hold true to their ideals, and never waver in the face of grave challenges. One can detect a certain level of admiration beginning to creep in by the third verse, even if it isn't in the first person as the rest of the poem is, which is also interesting. The fourth verse is perhaps the most famous. For England may keep faith is a surefire reference to Britain upholding its end of the bargain and implementing home rule after the war, a belief which set many moderate nationalists against what the rebels were doing. Perhaps their romanticism was the rebels' undoing, as Yeats asks, What if excess of love bewildered them till they died? Yet he does conclude the poem on a tone of unity, solidarity and perhaps even defiance when he announces that Wherever green is worn, the impact and memory of the martyrs will remain. It certainly is the case that Ireland had changed utterly, as Yeats put it, since Gladstone first declared his intentions to pacify it. But what was the terrible beauty with which Yeats spoke? Was he speaking from the shock he felt at seeing the death and destruction wrought upon Dublin, and then the rebels, by the British government? There is certainly an element of that, but the fact that he declares this terrible beauty to be born suggests that it had only just emerged, and that the true consequences of its birth are only beginning to be realised. Thus, Yeats looked to the impact that the rebels' actions were having on his homeland. He saw how they had changed utterly since the days before the Rising, and that now Ireland seemed moulded by the revolutionary message that the rebels had espoused. This was the terrible beauty. It was the inspirational challenge posed by the noble deaths of the martyrs. It was beautiful because they demonstrated that Ireland was so loved by them that they were willing to give their lives. It was terrible because the challenge or awakening that the rebels had created and posed did not end with holding their memories and deeds in reverence. It involved actively pursuing the end goal of the Irish Republic, which had originally been proclaimed on the 24th of April 1916. To pursue this goal, as Sinn Féin MPs, veterans of the Rising, numerous civilians and indeed Yeats himself recognised, warfare would have to be used, and a great and terrible struggle between Irish and British would have to begin once again. On the 21st of January, 1919, Dáil Éireann, the Parliament of Dublin, met in revolutionary circumstances for the first time. It was within these walls at a place called Mansion House, in Dublin's inner city, that the next chapter of Ireland's struggle for independence would be written. Here, the Sinn Féin MPs, who had not been arrested in the previous year, attended to usher in a new era of Irish history, one which contained for itself a parliament and executive completely independent and sovereign, imbued with the mandate to exist by the democratic will of the people. 
Relying on such a mandate, the deputies present declared Irish independence in a striking document that is less well known to history today than the actual proclamation of 1916, but which established the critical point that Ireland as a nation-state had an undeniable right to exist. It was a tense, heavy atmosphere, reminiscent of Patrick Pierce's similar declaration from years before. But that had been a different time, when Irish figures did not dare to dream that they could achieve the level of independence, entitled to by all other nations. When home rule was the best that was believed to be possible, but when such limited independence and continued association with the British Empire also seemed to make the most sense. Ireland was made up of radical republicans, moderate nationalists, moderate unionists, radical loyalists, and everyone else caught in the middle. But 1916 changed all that, because 1916 declared a 32-county republic, inclusive of all. Those that sat in this new Irish parliament in late January 1919 did not debate whether the proclamation of the republic from 1916 should be upheld, they instead immediately organised the means by which it would be defended. Success was not an issue, nor was it asked whether Irish forces had a chance against the militarised machine which the First World War had created in Britain, where thousands of demobilised or soldiers awaiting demobilisation awaited a new task and instructions. The people that decided Ireland's future in early 1919 were much the same as those that had decided it in 1916. They were small in number in a practical sense, and they professed radical aims, but the critical difference between both events was the popular participation within them. 1916 was a minority event, sweeping up the whole of Dublin and parts of Ireland, but counting on very little of its actual sympathy or support. 1919, by contrast, could realistically claim to speak for at least all of Ireland's nationalist elements. While perhaps not all of these nationalists favoured violence or willed the Irish war for independence that was about to come into being, the years since 1916 had undoubtedly made the prospect of armed conflict on the island, in the name of the Rising's ideals, a far easier possibility to contemplate. Since 1916, Britain had made every mistake, lost every popularity contest, and seemed more out of touch with the popular mood with every passing month. Their incendiary responses to small protests, the continuation of a regime of oppression, the endless stream of bad press coming from their actions, all of these considerations contributed to build a picture of the power that had once been perceived as Ireland's partner before 1916 but had now been transformed into its ultimate enemy. In contrast to the picture Britain now represented, radical republicans were able to capitalise on the British errors by tapping into the mood of popular sympathy following the rising. Additional displays of national pride roused the Irish populace and drew them towards more radical outlets for their sentiments than before. They found this outlet and the still more radicalized Sinn Féin party. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Which from August 1917 geared itself towards winning a political mandate for the Republic that Patrick Pierce had declared. They acquired such a mandate in the December 1918 general election and from that point onwards, with the British never going to allow a separatist republic split away from its nerve centre of the home islands, with the Unionists never going to believe in the concept of a free Irish republic in the same way as their nationalist counterparts, and with republicans and loyalists fearful of letting their national destiny slip away, conflict was perhaps inevitable. It must have been an immensely confusing and startling time for those out of the loop in Irish affairs. So complete had the transformation been following the 1916 Rising that a war seemed certain on the island in the name of its ideals. When in 1916 the rebels had barely been able to amass 2,000 men across the country in the name of their cause, now they could point to the totality of their electoral successes, the symbolism of the defeat of the old order in that election, and the hunger many Irish people now held for a truly independent state which only Fenian separatist ideologies could satisfy. It is and was an incredible story, the significance of which has shaped every single event in Irish history since. Perhaps the deputies that sat in the first ever doll on the 24th of January 1919 did not know where their declaration would lead them. 
Certainly they cannot have foreseen the awful nature of the war for independence or the bitterness that the resulting Irish civil war would create. They couldn't have known that Irish politics would base itself upon their struggles for the foreseeable future or that the legacy of the 1916 Rising would spill over into Ulster and cause terrible suffering there from the 60s to the 90s as well. In a world rocked by the First World War and changed utterly all by itself, Ireland was but one feature of this radicalised landscape which emerged from that experience transformed from its former status. Patrick Pearce had been right. Thomas Clark had been right. Joseph Plunkett had been right. Thomas McDonough had been right. Sean McDermott had been right. James Connolly had been right. Eamon Kant had been right. These men died in the name of an idea, an idea which had failed to inspire Ireland so many times before, yet these men believed until the end that they were soon to enter the Irish pantheon of martyrs, the palace of the dead generations. From there they believed their deaths would have an even greater impact than their lives, and they were right. Now these signatories of the proclamation, as well as the seven other martyrs who were executed, became the new dead generation. These men had acted in the name of Ireland's martyred Fenians of old, and now this new Ireland that they left behind had to act in their name, not as a romantic, empty gesture, but because it would fulfil what these martyrs had started, an impassioned, united struggle against a great enemy for the last time. Mindful of such a mission, we returned to the Sinn Féin deputies on the 21st of January 1919. After some debate, they reached a verdict that the following declaration should be presented to the world. The Irish people are by right a free people. For 700 years, the Irish people has never ceased to repudiate and has repeatedly protested in arms against foreign usurpation. English rule in this country is and always has been, based upon force and fraud, and maintained by military occupation against the declared will of the people. The Irish Republic was proclaimed in Dublin on Easter Monday 1916 by the Irish Republican Army, acting on behalf of the Irish people. The Irish people is resolved to secure and maintain its complete independence, in order to promote the common will, to re-establish justice, to provide for future defence, to ensure peace at home and goodwill with all nations, and to constitute a national polity based upon the people's will, with equal right and equal opportunities for every citizen. At the threshold of a new era in history, the Irish electorate has, in the general election of December 1918, seized the first occasion to declare by an overwhelming majority its firm allegiance to the Irish Republic. Now, therefore, we, the elected representatives of the ancient Irish people in National Parliament assembled, do, in the name of the Irish nation, ratify the establishment of the Irish Republic and pledge ourselves and our people to make this declaration effective by every means at our command. We ordain that the elected representatives of the Irish people alone have power to make laws binding on the people of Ireland, and that the Irish Parliament is the only Parliament to which that people will give its allegiance. We solemnly declare foreign government in Ireland to be an invasion of our national right, which we will never tolerate, 
and we demand the evacuation of our country by the English garrison. We claim for our national independence the recognition and support of every free nation in the world, and we proclaim that independence to be a condition precedent to international peace hereafter. In the name of the Irish people, we humbly commit our destiny to Almighty God, who gave our fathers the courage and determination to persevere through long centuries of a ruthless tyranny, and strong in the justice of the cause which they have handed down to us, we ask his divine blessing on this last stage of the struggle we have pledged ourselves to carry through to freedom. The great struggle for Irish independence has begun and will protect its citizens from the terrorists that is the right of nations to determine their own destiny. Ireland is a nation. Ireland is not a nation. My honourable friend believes it in his heart, but whenever you try to come to settle it... has been proved, said the right honourable gentleman in his most eloquent language, in his most oratorical articulation... The Republic will be defended by arms, and we will wrest the commitment of England, which was refused... He declares that the rights of nationality in Ireland... His Majesty's government will defend the integrity and peace of Ireland by all means at its disposal. Many thousands of former soldiers stand by... What is the use of talking of the perfidy of Germany and breaking a treaty with Belgium when... They are the black and tans. Former soldiers with no business here. The Government of Ireland Act provides for a compromise whereby Unionist and Nationalist can have his own state and live within it. Partition is a betrayal, and the army of this united republic... Ireland's chief secretary has outlawed the Dáil and Sinn Féin. Michael Collins commands the greatest force of assassins that the modern world has ever seen. In such a violent atmosphere as this, no Royal Irish Constabulary man and no Dublin Metropolitan They strike terror into British hearts and all true Irish patriots. Collins' squad is struck at the heart of Britain's administration. 14 British informants... It is bloody Sunday. The black and tans of Struck and Croke Park Many have been Martial law is the result of the terrorists' actions. We will stamp out this terrible revolt against the good governance. The IRA is Ireland's revolutionary army, and it will rid this island of this occupied. Ireland is on lockdown because certain elements within it refuse to bow to the law. This conflict is bitter and bloody, but it cannot last forever under the present circumstances. The British are being made to look like criminals. Well, of course the, the rebels cannot win. They are facing the greatest empire in Peace the world. Peace is necessary because neither side can continue. We must negotiate Peace is never an option until the English garrison removes itself. The Anglo-Irish Peace Treaty secures our independence. This treaty ensures Irish loyalty while also granting a measured form of independence within the British This treaty is unacceptable. Sinn Féin and the IRA refuse to recognise it and will fight against the puppet Anglo-Irish government of the Irish Civil War has begun. Republicans want the impossible and nationalists accept the inevitable. All the while, the British regime looks on. Who can talk of give and take when those dead men are loitering there? This civil war has ripped our nation apart. All in the name of the legacy of the 1916 Rising, which... Come on, Gael, is the Irish Free State's governing party, and it opposes all talk by Sinn Féin of continuing The dominion the of the Irish Free State must now accept its lot as a contingent part of the British Empire. No amount of rebellion can change. Eamon de Valera has created a new party to stand opposed to the pro-treaty politics of the Irish Free State. They are the soldiers of destiny. They are Fianna Fáil and they have split off The statute of Westminster gives dominions the opportunity to repeal legislation passed by London. It is vital for creating a friendlier Commonwealth... Eamon de Valera has won the election. Now Fianna Fáil will lead the Irish Free State and will seek to implement its Republican creed 
1937 Constitution of Ireland defines Ireland in its purest form. As Catholic, Conservative, the Statute of Westminster, Eamon de Valera has taken apart the Irish Free State's commitment to our empire, and he has reshaped that state as increasingly more independent. England has declared war on Germany. For the second to Ireland, this is the emergency. She must remain neutral in spite of her British neighbour's determined policy. The Second World War. The war is over. Victory in Europe. Throughout the duration of the war, we never laid a violent hand upon them. Which at times would have been quite Could Mr. Winston Churchill not find it in his heart the generosity to acknowledge that there is a small nation that stood alone, not for one year or two, but for several hundred years against aggression? A small nation that could never be got to accept. Civil war politics will dictate Ireland's future for decades to come. On one side stands the pro treaty Fine Gael, on the other. This is the the Republic of Ireland. This is the legacy of the Rising fulfilled. In this 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising, we remember our dead generations and proclaim our sincere admiration for those brave martyrs. The civil rights movement in Northern Ireland has erupted into war. The provisional Irish Republican Army stands for the United Ireland proclaimed by Patrick Pearce. All the reign of terror ago. that the IRA stands for that is illegal. It cannot change the opinions of the Unionists, no matter how many Catholics live in fear because of the Unionist tyranny. The Republic must act in their name. Loyalist paramilitaries have seriously escalated the situation. Now the Northern Ireland state is split The Republic cannot stand idly by as such terror and injustice is practised on true Irish citizens. British soldiers now police Ulster. See now how the English garrison will never let go of Ireland. Ulster says no. A joint effort by Ireland, by Britain, by the United States and by the people of Ulster will bring peace. True peace cannot be kept by force, only by... The Anglo-Irish Agreement represents a new era in the history of this land. Finally, we make the step towards reconciliation and compromise, which are so necessary for families and friends to live in The Good Friday Agreement is the culmination of years of sacrifice, compromise and hard political work. May it stand as an example to the rest of the world. But two distinctly different people. The triumph of compromise, the power of reconciliation, and the importance of acceptance. Let these be the lessons we have learned from the last century of conflict. Let this be the true legacy of the 1916 Rising. The Irish War of Independence raged from January 1919 to mid-1921, and by its end the settlement took the form of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, an arrangement which would grant Ireland limited self-rule as the Irish Free State, while creating a separate state of Northern Ireland and granting the Unionists their own parliament, which would continue to define itself by its closer relationship with the United Kingdom. This Anglo-Irish treaty caused immediate divisions within Ireland, as the majority accepted it on the basis that it was the best that could be achieved at that time, and that future activism would surely achieve more, whereas the minority refused to accept it, and, led by Sinn Féin's Eamon de Valera, continued to wage a futile campaign against the Irish government that they refused to recognise. This was the bitter conflict known as the Irish Civil War, and it raged from mid-1922 to early 1923. By its end, the island had been divided on pro- or anti-treaty lines, 
and de Valera remained aloof from the political establishment alongside his Sinn Féin party. In time, such resistance to the new Irish regime would change, though. Eamon de Valera created his own Fianna Fáil party in the late 1920s in order to provide a challenge to the incumbent government of Cumann de Gael, the Council of Gales. By 1932, his party had achieved electoral success in the British-sponsored Irish government and set about its task of dismantling the Anglo-Irish Treaty that de Valera and other Republicans had so despised and had originally waged war against. Meanwhile, a fringe Republican Sinn Féin remained on the outside of Irish politics, refusing to recognise the legitimacy of the Irish Parliament and agitating instead for the Republic proclaimed in 1916. A goal which Eamon de Valera had long accepted was no longer reachable, at least not through violence. Over the course of the 1930s, Eamon de Valera took the Anglo-Irish Treaty that ended the War of Independence apart. Removing land annuities, removing the Irish Oath of Allegiance to the British Crown, which Eamon de Valera had originally found so hard to swallow, and engaging in a kind of economic war that solidified Ireland's independent status, even as a dominion. By using the 1931 Statute of Westminster, a significant law introduced by Britain which gave all dominions the power to oppose or vote against British legislation, de Valera was able to increase the sovereignty of his country and continue the march towards the Irish Republic which was eventually proclaimed in 1949. Those dissidents who cried foul and claimed that Eamon de Valera and the Irish government had betrayed the legacy of 1916 by compromising were out of touch with reality. But they continued their bitter fight, albeit with a minuscule support base and a vanished mandate. Increased government powers to deal with them forced the renegade Irish Republican army effectively underground like never before, and they may well have faded into obscurity altogether had it not been for the eruption of a yet more terrible conflict in Northern Ireland nearly 20 years later. Northern Ireland was undoubtedly a state based upon prejudice and inequality, not to mention bigotry, discrimination and ignorance. It was as if Unionists wished to rule the region without paying any mind to the Nationalists left behind by the partition of Ireland. Despite the majority of Northern Ireland containing Protestant Unionists, a considerable minority contained largely Catholic Nationalists, left over from the days of Republican agitation, from migrations of families north before the Partition era, or from simple living patterns. Whatever it was, Unionism did not give Nationalists a fair say in how the region was governed. Elections were effectively controlled to give Unionist candidates better chances for success in election, where these deputies would then represent their constituents in the Stormont Parliament, Northern Ireland's regional assembly. When they took their seats, these deputies remained determined to maintain the status quo. Nationalist or Catholic delegates were mostly prevented from taking office, with the result that nothing seemed to change in the 50-odd years since Northern Ireland had been founded as a state in 1920. By the end of the 1960s, with civil rights campaigns beginning to reach a fever pitch in the United States and elsewhere, those that wished Northern Ireland to be something more joined in the general tide of marches and speeches, which soon engulfed Northern Irish society and shed a really unflattering light on how the whole state had operated for the past two generations. 
Before long, to cut a very long story short, these protests turned ugly. And when action by the Northern Irish executive seemed slow in coming, and the arrests and prosecutions resulted in standoffs between different groups, violence became more common. Into this void, the Irish Republican Army appeared, ready to defend the Irish nationalist Catholic population who had for so long suffered under Unionist governance. This was the Provisional IRA, and it claimed its legitimacy from the actions of Patrick Pearce on the steps of the General Post Office in 1916, where a republic all across the island of Ireland had been proclaimed. The aim then was not merely one of protection, but of the ambition to make ruling Northern Ireland so difficult, so dangerous and so unprofitable for the British that they would abandon the island altogether and leave the Unionists behind, to be absorbed, it was expected, by the rest of Ireland. This was the primary goal of the Republicans, reciprocated by the more extreme elements of the Unionist community. Tit-for-tat bombings and shootings became commonplace, and the awful culture of violence between both sides, known as the Troubles, was born. The period defined how people south of the border talked about the North, with my parents and anyone from their generation able to recount news reports, almost daily occurrences, of this or that random shopping centre being bombed, or this or that Catholic, Protestant, randomer being shot dead. It was an awful time, and with little apparent options on how to deal with the situation, the violence intensified and the positions of both sides became more bitter and entrenched. Into such a bitter atmosphere, the British tried power-sharing options, where both communities, Protestant and Nationalist, would hold power at the same time but these were torpedoed by joint Unionist actions. They tried talks about peace talks, but these never went anywhere. They tried filling the region with British soldiers to keep the peace, but Republicans pointed to this as proof that the British were holding on to Northern Ireland by force alone, and that they had to be forced out of it in response. On the contrary, the narrative presented by Republicans and perpetuated by the cycle of violence on both sides was a false one. The British had no love for Northern Ireland. Numerous politicians in particular would have loved to abandon the whole place by the mid-1970s, but they couldn't, because a majority of that region in the Unionist community still wished to remain part of the United Kingdom. No amount of bombs from either side, no amount of wasted lies or needless destruction could change the fact that Britain was committed to maintaining its links with a region, so long as that region professed a majority desire to stay. This was a situation that could not be altered by violence, because the relationship between Unionist and British was based on something far stronger, a sense of identity that was defined by their presence within the United Kingdom, just as it had been before partition. Such a position no doubt angered and dumbfounded the Republicans, who wanted nothing more than a 32-county republic unified with the South. With such a clear-cut divide going on in the Northern Ireland story, change could only really come about when individuals from both sides came together to meet in the middle, forming groups that were dedicated not to the supremacy of one nationality over the other, but to the advancement of Northern Irish society beyond its violence and divisions. These individuals advocated an alliance party made up of unionists and nationalists, rejecting violence but urging real and genuine change, 
Some people drew attention to the fact that peace could only be achieved by negotiation, and that neither the Loyalists nor the Republicans possessed the means to expel one force from the region. The contribution of such groups such as the Alliance Party or the Social Democratic and Labour Party encouraged dialogue, but there was still a long way to go in Northern Ireland. After painstaking negotiations between the governments in Dublin and London, the two old enemies of Irish and British came together in a bittersweet reunion of sorts, for the sole purpose of bringing peace to the island of Ireland once and for all. They had considerable help from an American contingent of negotiators, and the three groups worked desperately to end the violence and bring the kind of climate to Northern Ireland which would foster enough goodwill to let negotiations between the actual nationalists and unionists take place. The process was indeed that long and complex. It wasn't until 1985, after so many years of these painstaking negotiations and false starts, that the groups finally met together and agreed to hammer out a solution. In November of that year, the Anglo-Irish Agreement was signed, with British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, Irish Taoiseach or Prime Minister Gard Fitzgerald, and representatives from Northern Ireland's camps attending. The core basis for agreement centred on the principle that Northern Ireland was a state whose future would be determined by majority opinion, not by violence. The Irish government would possess an advisory role in Northern Ireland's government going forward, while it was accepted by that same Irish government that Northern Ireland's status as a member of the United Kingdom would never change unless the majority of the region of Northern Ireland wished to vote to leave and reunite with Southern Ireland. The agreement certainly had its detractors, as Loyalists lambasted the Irish government's influence in Northern Ireland's affairs and Republicans upheld that the agreement betrayed the proclamation of the Irish Republic from 1916. The most important thing that the treaty did was open the eyes of all sides. Britain recognised and accepted the desire of the Irish government to possess a say in Northern Ireland's affairs as only logical, while Unionists were eventually forced to accept that whatever their desires, the British state would direct their affairs and that those affairs would be directed towards peace whether they liked it or not. Republicans had to swallow the spectacle of the Irish government betraying them yet again, and the Irish Republican army began its long saga of divisions over whether to accept the treaty at all or continue its campaign of violence. Sporadic bouts of violence occurred until the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 solidified what had been learned and gained in 1985. The order of the day was reaching agreement and achieving progress by way of compromise. Irish people in the Republic of Ireland down south were asked to vote in a referendum to change their constitution. In reference to the 1937 constitution, which stipulated that Ireland was defined as including all 32 counties. The referendum in this case wanted to change this so that the Irish constitution no longer stipulated that Ireland was defined as including all 32 counties and instead only held the 26 counties, which excluded Northern Ireland's. In return for this concession, which in itself was quite significant, new institutions were established designed to grant the Republic of Ireland greater influence in Northern Ireland's affairs and ensure its own interests would be considered in the future. 
a system of devolved government with equal power-sharing solutions were devised, while weapons were decommissioned, and following campaigns of public pressure, dissident loyalist and republican groups agreed to a ceasefire which officially brought the horrendous conflict to its end. In the course of the negotiations, political careers were made and years of frustrations were aired, as solutions to problems that were nearly a century old in some cases were finally found. There were many tears and a mood of celebration on both sides of the border, as the troubles finally ended, and Northern Ireland could continue to exist as an entity that granted equal rights and opportunities to all. As people from both communities tried to find some significance in the loss from the conflict that had spanned three decades, politicians on both sides voiced their support for the new peace process, and those that had originally opposed it were pressured into taking part in the new system, since it was accepted now that it wasn't going anywhere. The truth was that Northern Ireland depended on the cooperation of both communities to survive. It depended on compromise, understanding and acceptance if the day-to-day operations of the state were to function. Following years of tension, discrimination, antagonism, of hatred, of ignorance and violence, the majority recognised in Northern Ireland that this was the best solution for the unnatural historical creation that the state of Northern Ireland was. It was a state of affairs that had confounded Irish and British politicians for years, everyone from William Gladstone to David Lloyd George to John Redmond, but finally it seemed a workable solution had been found that all sides may not have been totally happy with, but which they reasoned at the same time was the best they could get from a situation where everyone had to get a little bit less than they wanted. This, the new generation of Northern Irish politicians, former militants and the old order appreciated, was the true definition of compromise. So, what does that brief story of the Northern Irish Troubles have to do with the 1916 Rising, and where does it fit into our epilogue here? Simply put, the impact of the Rising manifested itself throughout the 20th century, and every time it appeared, it tended to cause tension and eventual violence. What those individuals on the ground had to accept was the principle that violence did not work as a solution and that only through negotiation could Ireland on both sides of the border be in peace. The problem I have with the 1916 Rising is that its message enabled people to forget this principle. This is because it engendered the physical force Republican tradition, which for so long had held only the minority of Irish opinion as its support base. Ireland had been used to compromise in the years before the Rising, where Irish MPs accepted that they had been given this unfair lot but they worked to improve it within the political system of the time. This brought successes to the Irish community as we saw in previous episodes, but the rising changed all of this, because it propelled unrealistic ambitions, twinned with terrible violence, to the forefront of Irish thought, and made it acceptable to resort to such violence if the political system wasn't going your way. The ultimate cycle of Irish history, in my opinion, is that every time violence ruptures the fabric of society, it is the political process and system that has to pick up the pieces. The Act of Union came about in 1801 as a result of a violent rebellion, so Irish MPs worked to improve the Irish condition thereafter. 
The 1916 Rising brought years of revolutionary violence to Ireland, interrupting the political system and upholding force as a solution to Ireland's notable problems and woes. Following years of bitter and destructive violence, all that the post-war Irish government had to show for their losses was home rule light, and an arrangement which didn't include the North thanks to the partition solution. It was this government which was forced to pick up the pieces after years of violence by doing their best under the circumstances, with the limited political means at their disposal, by trying to create the Ireland through politics that couldn't be achieved through force. Similarly, the Troubles, as we saw, was waged by both sides as neither Unionist nor Nationalist wished to relent and give up their rights to the region. By the conflict's end, both sides had learned a lot about the other, and they had also learned the importance of give and take. 1998's Good Friday Agreement marked the end of the Troubles, and the beginning of a culture of cooperation and compromise between both extremes, with the realisation that unless everyone worked together, violence would be the result. The Power Sharing Agreement in Northern Ireland is a recognition of the fact that Within even a small portion of the island of Ireland, complex differences in opinion, race and belief exist. Rather than solving the problems of the land through force, as the message of 1916 would suggest, sense and tolerance has mercifully prevailed, and the region which, for centuries, was so contested, can now live in relative peace. The struggle for peace is the term often used to describe the Irish experience of the 20th century, especially with regard to the Troubles. One can only imagine the sacrifices individuals made, the losses they endured, the tragedies they suffered. By the end of the 20th century, Ireland was embarking upon a period of boom, the so-called Celtic Tiger, which, as most of us now know, ended disastrously in a terrible recession in 2008. This Celtic Tiger was a time of positivity, of pride in the new Ireland and a sense of purpose for the future of Ireland going forward. At the 90th anniversary of the Rising in 2006, Irish President Mary McAleese said, Like every nation that had to wrench its freedom from the reluctant grip of empire, we have our idealistic founding fathers and mothers, our Davids to their Goliaths. The small band who proclaimed the Rising inhabited a sea of death, an unspeakable time of the most profligate worldwide waste of human life. Yet, their deaths rise far above the clamour, their voices insistent still. The rising remained the source of pride. The example of the small Irish triumphing against the large British enemy. Yet, there was no triumph. The great falsification of the rising's actual course and its impact would have you believe that the Rising ushered in Irish independence, that it led to sovereignty and to peace on the island, and that the rebels who led it were victorious. In a sense, rather than the triumph that is often portrayed, it is more accurate to see everything that occurred within and after the Rising as both incredible and awful at the same time. It was awful because people died, and because the Rising set Ireland on a more violent path, which only negotiation diplomacy, understanding and forgiveness could rescue it from. Yet, it is in such rescuing that we can find comfort, that from the horrors and bitterness of Ireland's wars sprang not more martyrs, but brave negotiators 
peacekeepers and pragmatists dedicated to understanding their fellow human and compromising with them. Such figures required incredible bravery, incredible faith in their fellow human to trust them enough to negotiate with them, and incredible love for their own homeland. Yeats's poem Easter 1916 thus rings more true than we may have realised, and it was in fact more prophetic than we might think. A terrible beauty was indeed born out of the 1916 Rising. Terrible because of the conflict that was to come, but also beautiful because of the people that would stand up and rescue their beloved island from such a conflict. In the name of Ireland, would they usher in a new era of true peace and true freedom that we can all be proud of. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.